We're studying the book of Ephesians right now. If you have your Bibles, take them out and open up to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be studying today. Now, we've been going through a series of messages about develop. That's our word of the year. Every year we pick another word, and the word we picked for 2018 was the word develop. And we started showing from the beginning of the year all the different ministries where we're trying to develop disciples and what we're trying to do. Then we took on the book of Ephesians and said, let's go through this book. book of Ephesians is classic. It's classic Bible. It's like the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this church at Ephesus that went to a lot of other churches too and talked with them about how to develop in their walk with God. Perfect for you if you become a Christian. Perfect for you even if you have become a Christian. It starts introducing you to what it means to be a Christian. So it's about development. And I challenged many of you, I challenged everybody to a 90-day experiment. I said, study it every day with me. Read and pray every day. And what I'm trying to do is get a pattern in your life. Psychologists tell us if you can do something for 40 days, it'll become a habit. Well, I'm hoping you at least do 40, maybe 60, maybe 90, maybe even 120 because we've had a few gaps in between, so it's going to end up being a little longer. But the point shouldn't be missed, that I'm trying to train you, trying to teach you to get in the Word of God because you're going to need that every day of your walk with God. You desperately need the Word. Without the Word and the Spirit, you can't walk with God. You see, I take my job pretty seriously, very seriously, because someday I'm supposed to, according to the book of Hebrews, I have to give an answer to God for what I've done and how I've done with you. So I take this uh, seriously so much so that I'll challenge you to get in the Word. And um, the book of Ephesians is absolutely fantastic, especially the passage today. The passage today is in the book of uh, chapter 15, and I'm going to tell you all about it in just a minute, but it's extremely personal to me and, and my wife. I mean, I, I remember studying this passage before I even got married. I've been married 42 and a half years, so this is a long time ago. It set the foundation. It laid the base, and I keep coming back to it and back to it all the time because it just seems to grow in meaning and understanding as I grow in my marriage and begin to understand what it's like. So I'm excited to teach it to you today. I think it's going to be very helpful for you. I know it will be if it's been anything like it's been for me and Lori. So I'd like to pray for you now. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I pray for those who are single here, like when I first studied this passage. And I pray for those who are married here. And those who've been married a long time, those who've just gotten married, whatever it be, Lord, we know we need help in this area. And we know our culture doesn't help us much. So I'm praying that the Word of God would be not only spoken today, but understood. And people would be able to not just say the right words about what it means to be married, but actually live it out and experience the joy, the companionship, the love, the truth, the glory to you that you expected and wanted us to have in being married. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's start with this premise. If God invented marriage, and I firmly believe he did, I find no records in ancient literature that says, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create societies in smaller units, and the smallest unit to make up all societies is going to be the family unit, headed up by a man and a woman. Nothing ever says that except in the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. It's telling us that's God's invention, and he invented it. The two people could act, think, live like they're one. And he put the desire and the longing in our hearts to do it. But often we don't, we don't do it like that. That's the tragedy. You know, let's say... Let's put it in concrete terms. Let's say I, I tell you, hey, I'm all excited. I just got a new car. And I mean, I went all out. 
I got this really nice big Mercedes or I got this really new shiny Jaguar or I got this expensive Porsche. And you know what? I spent a lot of money, but I'm going to save a lot. How are you going to do that, Marty? Well, you know, instead of using gasoline, I'm just going to use water. And you go, you idiot. You're going to ruin your new car, right? Or, you know, I say, I got a new dog. I love Labradors, and I've always had yellow ones. I decided to get a chocolate, and I got a cute little chocolate Labrador, and he's so much fun. Problem is, he poops all over the place. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just not going to feed him. You're going to kill your Labrador, right? How stupid. Or, you know what? I need more education. So I'm going back to school. I'm going to go to college. I'm signing up. Going to go to Rutgers. I'm going to study and do all the things I need to do. There. Except, you know, I really don't like doing papers and I don't like doing tests. So I'm not going to do that part. You go, are you going to flunk? Now, why do those things sound so stupid? Because they all have a designed purpose in mind. So does marriage. You throw it out, and it won't work. And it's happening epidemically across America. And people are divorcing at at higher numbers than ever. There's all kinds of people who say, well, we're not even going to get married. We won't even make a covenant with each other. And and our whole culture is teaching us not to do this. And it's ruining America. It's ruining families. It's ruining people and their lives, even in churches, because we've bought into the lies sold to us by our culture. That somehow you can do it without its purpose. You can do it without its meaning. You can do it without the inventor's intent for what and the design of what it's supposed to be. You see, there's a design for maleness. There's a design for femaleness. And God invented it in marriage to work together, to complement each other, not to compete with each other. But our culture seems to teach us otherwise. In the book of Ephesians, Paul was confronting the same thing. Because Ephesus was a very pagan Gentile town. And I mean, if you think paganism is bad in America, you should have been in Ephesus. I mean, they even had temple prostitutes. They even worshipped the pagan gods by involving themselves in all kinds of perverse sexual things. It was a mess. So Paul, who happened to have lived there a couple of years, is probably thinking in his mind, oh man, these poor people probably heard all kinds of terrible stories of abuse and breakups and family things happening and all kinds of immorality and stupidness. And he's thinking, whoa, how in the world am I going to help them walk with God? Because remember the context? Context is chapter 5. He says, I'm going to help you walk with the Lord. Okay, one thing, you have to walk in love. Remember two weeks ago I had a sermon on this. Walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in wisdom. I mean, he spelled that out. That's what we've, he's just coming off of that section when he says, okay, now we've got to talk about marriage because he knows they have troubled marriages. He knows there's lots of pain. I'm probably speaking to some people the same thing. This is a sensitive subject to you. Maybe you've even been divorced once or twice. Maybe, you know, you've been through the pain. You know the hardship. You've been through the arguments. It's a horrible thing. And yet, what can you do to put it back together? That's who Paul wrote to. That's what he's talking about here. He's writing these words to help them understand what marriage is supposed to be like and how it's designed by the inventor, God himself. So I'm hoping with that context, you can get the true meaning of what it says here because he's writing to people with troubled marriages. And I know many of you have been, had trouble. I mean, every marriage does. Uh, mine as well. But you, ha- you, you can be pulled out of it. You see, our culture teaches us to be autonomous, self-determined, and individualistic. You know, the slogan of our day is what? Be true to yourself. 
<laughs> well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out uh, that's not going to work too good in a marriage. Because if I'm true to myself, then I've got to marry somebody that's true to what? Me? No, they're also going to be true to themselves. So I've got two people trying to be true to themselves, two people being very individualistic, very autonomous from each other, and they're going to be one? No way. Never work. Never. And our culture acts surprised, like this should work. Like, what are you, stupid? Of course that won't work. That's like having a puppy and I say, oh, I'm going to keep him from pooping, I'm just not going to feed him. Like, how dumb would that be? It'd be horrible. And that's what we're doing to our marriages. We're starving it out. Because we've got to go back to the designer's design. And that's what's presented here in the book of Ephesians. The love's gone. The authority structure's gone. The meaning's gone. As I put down what's called the big idea of the sermon, God made marriage to work. That's how he designed it. Point one. How God made it work for a wife. He explains to us how it goes now. Each, each point starts with the word how. How God made it work for the wife is how, where he started. I think he started with women because he probably spoke with more hurting women in his church in Ephesus than he did to men. He figures, well, here's the open door. I'll start with the women. I'll go to the men. But men, he has a lot more to say to us than he does to her. But anyway, look what he goes on to say. Ready? Point one. How God makes it work for a wife. Starting with verse 21 of the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the wife is the head, excuse me, for the husband is the head. (laughs) And why are you laughing so hard? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wow. Okay, we don't have time to get into every detail, but I can do this. What's the key word? Submit. What does submit mean? Submit is actually a military term that Paul uses here, meaning to rank yourself under. Whoa, let someone else be over you? Yep, that's the clear teaching of that word. Submit, rank yourself under. Well, what's the key phrase? Key phrase is really important. As to the Lord. I rank myself under my husband like I would rank myself under the Lord? Yeah, that's what it teaches us. I'm supposed to submit to the Lord. In fact, it's suggesting that when I submit to the husband, I am submitting to the Lord. It's suggesting that the way I submit to my husband is because I'm submitting to the Lord. I don't do this because he's so great. I don't do this because my husband has all the talent and all the insight and all the knowledge. I do it because the Lord has all the talent, insight, knowledge, and understanding. So I'm submitting to my husband to show my submission to the Lord. Get it? As to the Lord becomes extremely important here. It's just like when he had talked about in Ephesians 4, forgiving somebody just as God and Christ forgave you. I can do it because I do it for the Lord. That's how you're doing it. It's honoring Christ. Well, to do this, one would need to believe, you know. I'm sure there's a a wife here would say, oh, that, that sounds nice, but have you ever met my husband? Or someone could say, a husband could even say, well, yeah, but I'm not always right. She, I don't know if she should submit to me all the time or not in everything. So it causes questions to come to mind. But if a woman's going to do this, 
what he seems to be suggesting here, it's going to take a great deal of belief. And do you get it? If I'm going to submit to him as to the Lord, I'm believing the Lord can work through my husband, over my husband, under my husband, around my husband, ahead of my husband, behind my husband. It's like Joseph when he got thrown in prison in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And he says, well, God's going to use this. And he even says to his older brothers that got him thrown into slavery, he said, well, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. What? You mean he believed so much in the sovereignty of God that even the people over him would do something evil and he thought it was God working on for his good? Exactly. Exactly. That's what's being taught here. Let me read to you from a woman who's an amazing theologian. She's in Australia. Her name is Claire Smith. Her husband, Tom, is also a theologian. She, and literally, this is a person with a PhD in, in theology. And she wrote these words about this passage right here. It's called, it's called God's Good Design. That's her book. There's something wildly countercultural about this statement. I mean, who submits to anyone these days? And in everything, all of us women and men are children of the Enlightenment who think of ourselves as autonomous, self-determined individuals. And, and that's even before we factor in the more modern concerns of gender and power. She goes on to say some other things here. There's so much in this book I'd like to read, but let me read this. Each one of us is unique. And so every marriage is different, with different strengths and weaknesses, weathering different seasons of life, with different demands and different stresses. In all these circumstances, through all these differences, Christ is working in each of us to make us holy. Not not a one-size-fits-all approach, but transforming us as individuals to be like him. She's talking here about, oh, you know, we always are looking for the rules, and here's the system. She says, no, God leaves us freedom for differences in our marriages, but sets up these parameters. So what Paul gives us is not a step-by-step list of instructions on how to submit, but general parameters for wifely submission. The first is that a wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord, verse 22. This means that her, that her submission to her husband is an expression of her obedience to the rule of Christ, and also that her submission is to be in keeping with her submission to her Lord. And because of that, we make a mistake if we think that a wife's submission is just about human relationships. Not at all. In reality, a wife's submission to her husband is part and parcel of her submission to Christ, because as the Scripture tells us here, Christ requires it of her. This means that if a wife chooses continually to disregard or disobey this command, then her willingness to submit to Christ in everything is called into question, just as it would be by any continual and deliberate disregard of God's word. Indeed, as it would be for a husband to refuse to love his wife, it would be no different. Moreover, if a wife's submission is to reflect her submission to the Lord, she will submit herself to her husband voluntarily, willingly, deliberately, joyfully, wholeheartedly, thoughtfully, and with wisdom and discernment, just like she would to the Lord. However, having said this, there's a couple of qualifications. Listen closely. The first is that because a wife's submission is as to the Lord, then if a husband's demands are in conflict with obedience to Christ, Christ wins every time. If a husband wants his wife to join him in sinning, she is not to follow him into sin. 
If he wants her to be sexually immoral, she's not to follow him into immorality. If he wants to cheat on the taxes or lie or steal or to neglect or abuse the kids, then her first duty is to obey Christ and his righteousness. The second qualification is that tragically some husbands exercise headship as crushing and destructive abuse, which can be expressed in any number of ways, physically, sexually, verbally, socially, financially, and even spiritually. This is the, the sort of tyrannical rule that Christ rejected and came to overthrow. We'd be naive to think this sort of abuse does not happen even in Christian families and even with people we know. And think... Some of them we even think we know well. Well, it's never right. It's not biblical leadership. It's not biblical headship. It's abuse. And so that too should be rejected. But submitting to Christ. As we see when we get into the men's thing, pretty much men have to submit too. You'll see it's just a little different form because of the different gender. But God is trying to set up some kind of a structure. In fact, you'll see it when we get into next week's passage in chapter 6, where he talks about raising children, or talks about employer-employee relationships. Structure so necessary, and yet our rebellious culture is throwing all structure out. There's like no authority, certainly not God. But if you're going to accept that God's the authority, then God lays down a structure for things. Whether it's husband or wife or government or, or employee or, or, or children over with their parents, it's, it's, God lays that down. All these over and under relationships. And he's trying to do it to make the two become like one. That's his goal. Let me just throw a question out there. This is a good one to think about right here. Does God work through smart people more than dumb people? Does God work through just the talented people? the emotionally healthy people, the good-looking people. Is this true about teachers? Is this true about lawyers? Is this true about doctors? Is this true about, about um, bosses or, 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 or coaches? Well, of course, everyone here would say, no. God can work through somebody, even though they don't have their whole act together and they're not perfect. I would say that's true about a woman submitting to her husband as to the Lord. Because the Lord is smarter, is more talented, is emotionally healthy, is perfect. So that's why you can submit and have God work through him to you. Submission is a very powerful tool. It's actually used that way in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter and other apostles teaching on the same subject and tells women to submit to their husbands and even shares how their lives, a husband can be won over to the Lord by a wife's submission literally transformed. I was reading a book this week by um, Tim Keller. Tim and Kathy Keller, he's a pastor of a church up in, it's called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. They've literally started over a hundred churches in different cities around the world. He's written several books. Very intelligent man. Well, he tells a story in his book about marriage that he and Kathy wrote. He says, you know, when I was growing up, Tim Keller says, I was kind of a geek, kind of a nerd, and uh, I knew I wasn't cool because everybody told me. It was pretty clear I'm not a very cool guy. I wasn't hip. I didn't know how to hang out. I didn't know how to do stuff. I'm always thinking I'm in the books. I'm one of those guys, you know, that had computers. I would all have been on, on my computer. So he said, um, 
it was surprising to me when I got into college and there's this girl, Kathy, that thinks I'm really cool. Go figure. How does this happen? She, she likes it that I study. She wants to talk about some of the nerdy things I want to talk about. She thinks I'm cool. He says, fast forward, we ended up getting married. And she kept thinking that I was cool. She wanted to be under my training, under my teaching. She liked it that I wanted to talk about spiritual things and teach people. She liked the way I led things. He says, so here's Kathy thinking that I'm really cool. He says, in fact, here's how I saw it. He says, when I kept thinking of myself as Clark Kent, she kept thinking of me as Superman. He says, I'm telling you now, years and years later, how much influence Kathy's had in my life, in my thinking, in my emotional life, in my relationship, in our relationship, because she would submit to my leadership. It changed my life. That's what 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about. Look it up yourself. That's what Paul's suggesting here. When a woman can do that, it can have dramatic changes. So I just want to stop there for a minute now and let you think on that. And let's look at the rest of what it says about men. Look what it says to men. Point two, how God makes it work for a husband. Starting with verse 25. Let's just read one verse. It says a lot just in this one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Key word. What's the key word? Love, obviously, right? And love is like, remember the sermon I did a year and a half ago? Love is like concrete. Why did I use concrete? Because concrete, when you pour concrete, it's done. It's settled. It's, it's going to be hard to bust it up. It's a commitment. And the number one English word that's a synonym for love would be commitment. So, put that word in here. Husbands, commit to your wife. Like Christ committed to the church. What? He died on the cross. He literally sacrificed everything in his life for the church so we could be saved. Yeah, pretty high bar, right, guys? You mean I got to give it all up? Yeah, for her. That's what it means to love. Love is about commitment. So, he says that here. The word gave comes out real powerful to me. Love and giving go together. And so a husband is really submitting to the Lord in the same way because key words, the key, key word is love, and the key phrase is as Christ loved the church, right? He gave himself up for it. Submission to God is serving his wife. That's what he's saying here. Look at verses 26 through 27. It reads like this. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, that's a pretty beautiful picture. And he's not just talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about a husband and wife. That's the interesting thing here. It's as though Paul's saying, here's what it's supposed to look like. We're, 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 we're a, a, a man cleanses her, washes her, makes her beautiful. Uh, even using the word splendor. It's, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Splendor and without spot or wrinkle. Well, the imagery is very clear. He's painting a picture of what it looks like when Christ sanctifies his church and Christians grow in the Lord. But he's also trying to show us, here's what it's like when a husband really loves his wife. It's a beautiful picture and a beautiful thing. She becomes this beautiful person. Look what it goes on to say. Next few verses. Let's read it through verse uh, 31. Starting with 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives 
as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's out of Genesis, remember when God invented marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And he keeps using this analogy, Christ in the church, husband and wife. And he's saying, just like Christ is, is the head of the church, so the husband's the head of the wife. In the same way that the church submits to, to, to the Lord, in the same way a wife should submit to him, and it's the same way Christ loves the church, is how a man is supposed to love his wife. I, you know, I had a, a scholar who was one of my mentors. His name is Dr. Gene Getz. He, he was my pastor down in Dallas. And Gene really believes the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, was once married. A lot of people say, no, nah, he was always single kind of a guy, you know. But he's saying, no, he would have never even been a Pharisee if he wasn't married. But his wife must have died. And I can't help but think of that as you're reading these words, talking about washing, cleaning, presenting her. He's talking about the wife, nourishes and cherishes. Maybe in the Apostle Paul, he's thinking, oh man, I wish, I wish I'd have done more of this. I wish I'd have been a husband more like that. I wonder if that was there. I was reminded of this again last night. I got done preaching, and this gal comes up here with tears, takes out her phone, and says, here's a picture of my husband. And he had a chocolate lab in his chocolate lab. She said, but last September, he didn't wake up one morning. He's like late 40s, early 50s. What? He looks so healthy. In fact, he looks really built up like he's been lifting. Because, yeah, some abnormality in the heart nobody knew about. And boom, he's gone. She says, I want you to tell those people tomorrow. You don't know this might be your last shot at this. Guys, you only got one shot at this with one woman. You're supposed to love her, nurture her, care for her. This is your chance to make her a beautiful thing. Oh, this reminds me of my father-in-law. You know, my father-in-law was Paul Bubna. He was was, uh, uh, a pastor of a couple good-sized churches, then became president of a seminary, and then became president of the Christian Missionary Alliance. You can imagine, dating his daughter was very scary. Like, I didn't know, you know, my dad wasn't a factory worker. How are you supposed to act? What are you supposed to say? All this kind of stuff. And I remember when I'm dating her, when we start getting married and stuff, and you know what he said to me? He says, you know, in observations of life, I've learned something that I'd like to pass on to you. Oh, really? Yeah, I've observed something. It's kind of like my own little proverb. Your wife will be about as beautiful as you treat her. Now I'm really scared. You know? He's trying to tell me something. And he's saying this, he's saying, because this is what I've observed with guys. This is what I've observed with women. Your wife will be about as beautiful, about as pretty as you treat her. And now I'm 66 years old. And I go, you know what? He was right. That's really true. And is that not what it seems to be suggesting here? Nourishing, cherishing, splendor. I'm going to help her be washed and clean and walk before God, just like Christ does the church. That's my assignment. I give myself up. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take time. It's going to take sitting down to talk. 
it's going to take tenderness. These three words I put on the screen for you, they, they come to my mind all the time. Time, talk, and tender. Uh, yeah, because you know what? That's what God does with me. He wants me to spend time with him. He wants to talk with me, wants me to talk with him, and he is really tender with me, cuts me a lot of breaks because he's so forgiving and merciful. Are you that way, guys, with your wife? Are you, are you that kind of leader? Are you really nourishing her, cherishing her? Are you really cherished? That's what this gal was saying last night when she came forward. Just tell those people to cherish the moments they got. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm out of time, so let's, let's go to the last verse. Last verse, point three. How God makes it work together. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The bottom line is you give yourselves to each other and it's going to look different for the husband than it does the wife. It's going to be looking like love for the wife and looking like respect for the woman. The husband's called here to love his wife, pour it on. And she's called to respect her husband, show him honor. Why does he do that? Why didn't he just say love one another, just love each other? He doesn't say that because he knows and God designed the genders differently. He knows a husband needs respect and a woman needs love. I got a couple of friends uh, I forgot to share about in point two. Uh, one of them is a guy named Rob, and Rob's marriage was gone, done. He, they were just young then, and he had, they had a little toddler, like two or three years old. But his wife became a Christian, and she's going to this little Methodist church, and she starts asking the ladies in the prayer meeting to pray, pray for her husband, Rob. And they're praying for him, and he's very worldly, running around, he's got his own business, all this stuff, and, do, and not nourishing, cherishing, and their marriage was going farther and further apart. I remember a letter she wrote me about the devastating place her marriage was over. And sure enough, they split up for six months. Rob was gone. Maybe it was the prayers of those ladies in the little Methodist prayer group, but somehow, some way, Rob came to the Lord. Conviction came upon him. He came to Christ. He came back and tried to woo his wife back and get back in the relationship again. She led him in and they started growing in the Lord. So much so that Rob and his wife today, and this is 20 years ago, literally teach seminars of how you can keep your marriage together. Because their, their point of view is, huh, if ours could be saved, yours is a piece of cake. Because you can't believe all the multiple problems, drug abuse, all kinds of things was in our marriage. Or I have another friend, Scott. Scott and I were in the Jesus movement together. On fire for the Lord, following him. Scott went on to get married, had three kids, doing really good. And then they got divorced because he found another woman. So he goes and lives with this woman for 13 years. Conviction comes upon him and he realizes, I should be back with Debbie. What am I doing? He goes back to his original wife and tries to reunite them in their wedding vows. Literally, they become married again after being divorced 13 years. So you think your situation is hopeless? I, I got too much evidence and too many experiences to say it is. Because it can be healed. It can't come... What does the scriptures tell us? God invented it. Here's how it works. Violate that? Yeah, you'll pay the consequences. Come back and live that? It can actually work. God made marriage to work. And how does it work? Well, he summarizes in this verse that we just read by a husband loving his wife and a wife respecting her husband. 
There was a guy who wrote a book, Emerson Egrich, wrote a book called Love and Respect. He literally got his PhD, his doctorate in psychology, based on this verse. Oh, yeah, it was an uphill battle in the secular psychology a network of things to try and prove his point. But he was trying to show that if you can do it like this, it'll work. This is, like, important to understand. And, and finally, they had to give him a doctorate, you know, because he, he was, had all the research and all kinds of things down. And he mentioned some things. He says, the difference is this. It's like women have pink sunglasses, and men have blue sunglasses. So when a woman looks at things, she sees it through her pink sunglasses, and it looks pink. He looks at things through his blue sunglasses, and it looks blue. This is why God doesn't tell everybody, just do the same. He says, no, women, you need to show respect to him, because that's what he needs so bad. And guys, you need to show love to her, because that's what she needs so bad. Oh, and he says, when you don't, you get into this thing. This is all in his book, Love and Respect. It's called the crazy cycle. Let's put it on the screen. Crazy cycle. That's when a woman doesn't respect her husband, doesn't show him respect in any way, even if he's wrong about something. And, and, and the guy doesn't show love to his wife. He's not taking time to talk with her, not being tender. And he says, you get in this vicious circle. Oh, I've seen it a million times, especially in my counseling office. Yeah, she's on this side of the couch. He's on that side of the couch. And boom, 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 boom. He said, she said, he's. And sometimes you can go through a whole session and you make zero progress because nobody's putting down their weapons. Everybody's still shooting. And it's like, see you next time, you know, let's pray. You been there? Oh, every marriage has crazy cycle. Of course you do. It's a woman's tendency to not show respect. It's a guy's tendency to not love. It's easy. It's natural. You're going to have to be changed. God has to come into the equation. Both of you have to realize, as to the Lord, is the only way we're going to stay married. That's right. Put down the weapons and join up. When somebody in a counseling session finally says, you know what, I'm just going to do what God says no matter what. Whoa, that just throws a monkey wrench in everything. And all of a sudden, the cycle starts getting shaken and changing because somebody's not fighting back. It's like Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You mean to actually do it? What if I do and he doesn't? What if I do and she doesn't? So you're only going to be obedient to God if they do? Come on now. What are you saying? Are you going to obey the Lord or not? So he ends this passage by talking about this love and respect. And I need to end the sermon. You know, like I said, my wife and I have been married, let's see, what, 42 and a half years now. And, um, of course, we've had challenges like anybody in their marriage, but we've had a really solid marriage. I think it's because we started with this in the basis. But one thing I've noticed, and everybody has struggles, like I said, is that I didn't know when I got married 42 years ago. You, you, you don't think about this. No one ever told me how much you change. And I guess you could say we really haven't even changed that much. Still Christians, still have a lot of the same values, but physically you change, emotionally you change, relationally you change, spiritually you change. I mean, come on, let's be honest. One thing you can be 100% certain of in this world is what? Change. <laughs> it's going to change. Everything's going to change. So this is why God said you start your marriage with what? A vow. A wedding vow, a covenant, a contract. And I'm going to do it before God. Because God not only needs to enable me to do it without my promise to God, I'll probably leave it. Right. 
And this in our culture is being thrown out the window. I don't even want a covenant anymore. Or if you make one, make it so waffly it doesn't really mean anything. Believe me, I've been doing weddings. This is what's happening. Everybody's all excited about these weddings, but they don't mean nothing anymore. You make a covenant. Maybe what you need to do this morning is renew your covenant. You don't have to stand before a preacher. All you have to do is bow your head before God and say, God, I'm coming back to the promise I made to you 40 years ago or whenever it was. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to respect my husband. I'm going to do it. You're going to give me the grace because that's obedience to you. And I'm asking you, come on, Lord, I'm going to do it. You give me the power to do it. I'm committed to the covenant, the promise I made to you. How long ago? How many people sitting right here need to do that immediately, right now? Don't wait. Because your marriage is in pain. You're in problems. You're having trouble. You're in disobedience. You've got to get right with God. And so I'm calling on you to come before the Lord and renew your covenant today. Yeah, change happens. It's going to. But are you going to be faithful to the Lord or not? That's what it's going to take for you to save your marriage, for you to put things back together again. That's what it's going to take to come to the nourishing, the cherishing, this beautiful imagery in this passage. We didn't even have time to hardly open up and take apart. It's beautiful. That's what's supposed to be happening, and it can happen. God created marriage to be a compliment to you. You to your husband, your husband to you, and vice versa. Two people like this. But so often, we accept the crazy, individualistic, prideful thing. You know that lady that came up last night? She says, you know what made my marriage rough sometimes when we had trouble? And I was not at all surprised by her answer. She said, pride. My pride, his pride. That's this, folks. That's not oneness. That's proving your point. That's making your case. It's not love. It's not respect. To love and respect takes humility. Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled by your word. Every one of us. None of us are the perfect spouse. Sometimes we like to defend ourselves like we're out, we are, but we're not. You invented marriage for us to glorify you. You invented marriage for us to be able to have companionship and oneness like our heart longs for, and yet our own sinful nature fights against it. So maybe you need to join me this morning in saying, Lord, please forgive me. Oh, if you feel that at all, tell him, Lord, I'm sorry. I have not been a good covenant keeper. I have not been a good husband, a good wife. I've, I've had some mistakes. I've, I've slipped up here and there, Lord. And sure, you, you, your brain is going to want to say, yeah, but she, yeah, but he. Uh, don't do it. Don't. Stop it. Get out of the crazy cycle. Say, Lord, I'm talking about me here, not them. And I'm saying, I renew my covenant with you. My contract my promise to you. And so I will submit, so I will love, and I will sacrifice for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray this prayer. Now help me live it. Amen. Amen. God bless. I'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.